Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to a real, real edition of Buckeye Talk. It's Oklahoma week for the Buckeyes. Doug Lane-Maurice with Bill Landis and Ari Wasserman from Cleveland.com. You can find our coverage during the week at cleveland.com slash OSU. Thanks for finding us here on the Buckeye Talk podcast. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us uh, in the post on cleveland.com. You can find us, if you look hard enough, you'll find us, honestly. Um, so thanks for finding it. The Buckeyes are 2-0, and and like this is a big deal, right? This, this I, I, I went through and sort of tried to figure this out. Um, by my calculations, what I considered big games with everything still on the line, um, this is the 11th game for Urban Meyer in now his fifth season. Like these don't come around. Do a you whole lot. do you include? Because I saw someone someone said today, and it might have been in response to the story that you wrote on Monday about how they fare in big games, and they like they counted the Virginia Tech game in 2014 as a big game. Do you count that in that no, 11? My calculation. I'll give you my calculation on big game, and then we'll we're going to talk handsome quarterbacks on the podcast this week. We're going to talk about what the Houston win over over Oklahoma means for Ohio State in this game, and we're going to talk about what it means in the playoff. Um, but my calculation was the four Michigan games yeah. in his four seasons, because Michigan's always a big game. Uh, Michigan State Big Ten Championship in 2013, going back to Michigan State for the revenge game in 14, and then the home game last year. So three Michigan State games. That's seven. Mm-hmm. I didn't count the first Virginia Tech game, but I counted the revenge Virginia Tech game on the road to open the season last year, um, which is eight. And then I did the three games in the championship run, which is the Big Ten championship over Wisconsin and the two playoff games. And and I didn't count the Fiesta Bowl and I didn't count the Orange Bowl loss because it's already too late by then. Good point. You know, those are bowl games once you've missed the playoff. So that's not everything on the line. So why not the first Virginia Tech game? I find that interesting. Because nobody thought going into that game, that yeah. game was like, oh my gosh, like, you've got to be ready. Like, it was like Virginia Tech's good, whatever. Like, oh, there's a young... But I felt like before that game, there wasn't the buildup that would compare to something like this Oklahoma game. They just The reason why I bring that up is because that was a blackout, if I, if I remember correctly. What uh, it was a night game. Night game, and it was a huge recruiting weekend. And they had everything still on the line. And I see what you're saying because they had just lost Braxton Miller and I'm not sure that people thought that they were a national championship contender at that point. But it did happen early on in the season in a year they won a national title and they hadn't lost yet. Yeah, but it was like it became a big game because they lost. But like going into it, like there yeah. wasn't every like there was I mean, no, I'm not, I yeah. just thought it interesting and I thought yeah. we should clarify. I mean, so. it, yeah, I mean, it's I, I was sort of talking build up with the idea of the whole week, you know, 
this is what we are here for. This is why we wake up at this 5 o'clock in the morning. This is why we play. Because <laughs> these rare games. And yeah, that was their best non-conference game that year. Mm-hmm. But as you even had written going into that, I mean, Virginia Tech by that point wasn't the Virginia Tech that they had scheduled originally. Right. So this to me harkens back to my early years on the beat when they did play Texas and they played Vince Young and then they played Colt McCoy in back-to-back years. Then they played USC and they had yeah, two great games certainly. with USC. You know, like, you know, they had Miami, but this is, this is Oklahoma, man. I mean, this, this feels more like USC than it does Miami. And, it, you know, they had Washington in there. They had Virginia Tech. You know, they, they just, they haven't had this level of non-conference opponent. And this is a game that people have had on the calendar in the summer months. Like, this is like a year in the making. I, I remember when they scheduled this in 2008, and it was a big deal. Hey, they're going to play Oklahoma, you know? So that's what this is. And I think... Um, Maybe a little shine has been taken off because Oklahoma already has a loss, but it's such a fascinating loss. So we'll start with there. Everybody should know by now that that Houston, the team that beat Oklahoma in the opener, of course, is run by Tom Herman, the former Ohio State offensive coordinator, who is running the same Ohio State offense that won the national championship at Houston now. We just sat here in uh, Ari's apartment here in our fake podcast studio, and we watched some of that game. And Bill... um, that Houston offense that looks so familiar mm-hmm. beat Oklahoma. Is it as simple enough to say if that Houston version of this offense beat Oklahoma, then Ohio State, which has even more talented players in that same offense, should beat Oklahoma too? Can we draw that much of a straight line? Uh, probably not. I asked JT, well, I didn't ask JT Barrett about that on Monday, but he said that, um, that Houston's offense is different. And, like, I don't know the intricacies enough to know how different they are, but it looks the same. And I think the ideas are the same. What they want to do to attack defenses are the same. Um, If I was an Ohio State fan watching Houston-Oklahoma, I would feel fairly confident in Ohio State's ability to move the ball against Oklahoma's defense. Playing well on offense does not mean you win the game because Oklahoma's offense is really good, too. And I think there's still questions about Ohio State's defense. But from a purely offensive standpoint, um, Ohio State's skill is definitely better than Houston's, and Houston moved the ball pretty good against Oklahoma. Um, through the air and, and on the ground somewhat, too, with a very athletic quarterback um, who might be a little more athletic than JT Barrett, but now you're just kind of splitting hairs. Um, I think that you can you can draw some lines from Houston's offense to Ohio State's offense and the success that Houston had in that game. The concepts and the things that Ohio State wants to do to move the ball offensively seem to work against Oklahoma. All right, we just sat here and watched uh, the replay of Houston running back a missed field goal, 109 yards for a touchdown in that Oklahoma game. If you missed that, it was a return of a field goal. The the thing we saw in the uh, Alabama-Auburn game a couple years ago, everyone knows what that play looks like now. You're short on the field goal, and the defending team has a guy back there waiting. He catches it, and then all the big linemen that the kicking team had on the field can't catch the fast guy running. They set up blocking, and they score. At it was 1917. Houston was ahead in the middle of the third quarter when Oklahoma lined up for that field goal, a 53-yarder. If Oklahoma had made it, Oklahoma would have taken the lead. Instead, they miss it. Houston runs it back. Houston goes up nine. Ari, when I look at that, I think that's a weird thing. That's a fluke. That changes completely the momentum of the game. And that's not going to happen <laughs> in Ohio State-Oklahoma. Should... That that weirdness of that play, 
takes a little out of the Houston win for me as I look at it and say, oh, okay, if Oklahoma can't beat Houston, there's no way they can beat Ohio State. Did you feel like that was fluky, or is that some kind of indication of Oklahoma makes mistakes in big games? I think that like a play like that might seriously be the biggest back-breaking play that can happen in football. I mean, pick six is up there, kickoff return for a touchdown is up there, but at least in a kick six, that's pretty bad. You take three points off the board and seven points on, and that's a ten-point swing immediately. Unless you have a an interception in the end zone that gets returned all the way, I can't think of a worse play that could happen. Um, so I don't want to say that that is the only reason why Houston won the game. I think from the the small amount of time that we spent watching the first half, it looked like Houston's offense was. You know, giving Oklahoma trouble. I thought Oklahoma looked kind of shaky defensively, at least in a tackling standpoint. But certainly in a game like that where you're a big underdog, it's in the third quarter, um, you know, something like that happens, and all of a sudden the entire momentum and, and thought process of how that game could and should turn out shifts. So I don't want to minimize the importance of a play like that happening. And, Bill, you seem to really zero in on the potential problems in the Oklahoma secondary in that game and, and what you've seen through two games, do you feel like Ohio State has the passing game um, with JT Barrett and the guys he's throwing to to potentially exploit that? Well, I don't know because um, Houston was doing it like with outside receivers, and I, I I think it's fair to say that we I don't know if we've seen a lot of what Ohio State's outside receivers can do. They were, the slot guys were awesome against Bowling Green, and I think scored all the the JT Barrett threw six touchdowns. And I think five of them were the guys who were lined up in the slot, and the other one was Noah Brown on the jump ball. Um, so I don't know if like oh, Houston's outside receivers were doing a really good job of getting behind Oklahoma secondary in that game. And I watched like six minutes of their game against Louisiana Monroe, and in those six minutes, some of those same things were happening. Um, I think Oklahoma has questions at cornerback, um, and they were rotating guys. I think they've used three or four different starting cornerbacks in two games. Um, so there seems to be a vulnerability there, but I don't know how good Ohio State's outside receivers are because we haven't really seen guys like Noah Brown and Johnny Dixon and that kind of pop yet, have we? The three we? of us were in the press box after the game on Saturday, and I looked at Doug. Doug looked back at me. It was a magical moment, and I said, what happened to Noah Brown, and is that a story? That is Ohio State's number one outside receiving target threat, non-existent in game two. And I don't know what the exact reason was, but when we asked Herbert Meyer after the game, he said that he is almost 100% back to where he was before he broke his leg. So, yes, we have not seen an outside threat that we could put down on paper and say this guy is going to have seven receptions for at least 80 yards in this game. Right, like if Michael Thomas was still on the roster, I would say Michael Thomas is going to catch 12 balls against Oklahoma. There is no Michael Thomas until somebody does something. And Urban Meyer on Monday brought up that, that that exact point, that they have a bunch of guys, but they don't have that one guy who's emerged. But they talked all summer like Noah Brown was that guy. It was assumed. He had one career catch coming into this season. And I think anybody who covers this team just got on the bandwagon of Noah Brown's the guy because Urban Meyer, JT Barrett, and everybody else on the team said he was the guy so vociferously. Every, and it's over and over and over again. And, and, yes. and to, to clarify here, I don't think any of us are, are criticizing Noah Brown. No. no. I think we are wondering why Ohio State's not using him more is more the question, correct? I mean, just based on the way that they talk, and they would have no 
reason to shove somebody down our throats for no reason unless he was actually doing right. the things that they said he was doing. There's nothing to gain from that. So that is correct when you say, where is he? It's not because I don't think he's capable of doing the things that Ohio State said. I'm trying to figure out why they didn't attempt to get him involved so he could do those things. And it's not like they didn't – I was a crazy person and said that Noah Brown was going to catch 70 passes this year, which, like, Michael Thomas didn't do it, so why would Noah Brown ever do it? Um, the outside receivers, like, I think are very rarely the go-to guys in Urban Meyer's offense, but I think Noah Brown might have, like, three or four catches this year and I think might have only been targeted three or four times. Yeah, I think he, he had just, four catches. He had three in the opener and one in game two. He just seems like he is, like, he and really none of the outside receivers seem to be a prior, priority whatsoever in their offense. And maybe, I don't know, maybe they're holding it back. Who knows? And, and it's one of those things you got to take, you know, you, you heard it once with these guys, and it's all coaches, you heard it a thousand times. You take what the defense gives you. They destroyed people with Curtis Samuel and Dontre yeah. Wilson and getting mismatches on linebackers, whether they're in the slot or out of the backfield. So that's working. Um, one more question about the passing game before before we move on a little bit. You know, Urban Meyer said it in the press conference when we got back to Ohio after the Fiesta Bowl last year, like three days after the season ended. We are going to throw it more next year. We have to throw it more next year. From the JT Barrett standpoint, A, do you guys like what you saw from JT Barrett to believe that JT Barrett can fulfill his end of the equation in throwing it against Oklahoma? And is this it? Like, is this is this the money game for them to back up what they said? Do you think they must throw it to win? I think they do. Um, Oklahoma's defensive line seems like it's pretty good. Um, a lot of guys, Urban Meyer and, and some of the offensive players we talked to on Monday, said that you know this isn't going to be an easy team to run the ball against. This, these guys are big. They're talented. They compare them to Alabama. I don't think they're that good. If Oklahoma's defensive line was as good as Alabama's, Oklahoma would be better. Um, but I don't like Ohio State. I think can't just rely on JT Barrett running the ball and handing it off to Mike Weber and Curtis Samuel, which is kind of what they fell into early against Tulsa. And even against Tulsa, they couldn't move the ball. And Tulsa was doing some things that, to kind of confuse Ohio State's offensive line. Um, they have to throw the ball. I think they have to take shots down the field. I think JT Barrett um, is going to have to make tougher throws just because the athletes on Oklahoma's defense are better. Um, so I think we'll learn a lot about JT Barrett as a passer. He was largely throwing to wide-open receivers through the first two games. And while I think there's concerns about Oklahoma's secondary – um, they're more athletic, they're faster, they're better recruits. I think they can stick with Ohio State's talent way more than these first two teams can, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on JT Barrett to make throws that he hasn't had to make yet. All right, did you like JT throwing the ball for the first two games? I liked him a lot in the first game, remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I do. And I and I don't, I don't know, we've actually been at Cleveland.com far more critical and unsure of JT when everybody has already penciled in him as the greatest quarterback. He didn't throw it great last year. You know, I think there was reason to be concerned about him uh, coming into the season. And I think that given that there was a huge talent drop off, I thought that he looked serviceable in the first two games, obviously very good in the first game, shaky at times in the second game, but Ohio state still has yet to play a team that has anywhere near the amount of talent as of a big 10 team. I mean, a top tier big 10 team, uh, let alone themselves. So I still think that we go into this game with question marks um, with JT and whether or not these guys can get open. I think it's a two, you know, two prong approach. I think one one guy's got to get open and JT's got to get it there. And I don't think I go into this game thinking Ohio State certainly is going to throw all over this defense, not by a long shot. Couple two points I want to make. 
One is talking about Ohio State's need to throw the ball in a big game against a team that has questions in the secondary and is very stout up front reminds you of what recent game? Michigan State. Michigan State last year, where you knew that Malik McDowell and Shalik Calhoun and those guys on the Michigan State defensive line were not going to make it easy. And I still contend that they lost that game not because they didn't use Ezekiel Elliott enough, they, which Ezekiel Elliott thinks. They lost that game because they couldn't throw it in bad weather. But whatever. They needed to be able to throw it, and they couldn't against a Michigan State secondary that was there for the taking. So. And that Michigan State secondary, without maybe being exaggerating, is probably, without exaggerating, it's probably way worse off than this Oklahoma secondary, just based on what I remember about that team. And, and they just, they just, I mean, that was their Achilles heel, and they just could not find a way uh, to exploit that. So that was last year. This is this year. That's a point, I think, to keep in mind. Uh, the other thing is, Houston seemed very effective playing fast against Oklahoma. Um, actually, I had three points, I realized. This is point two. <laughs> oh, shocker. Yeah. <laughs> hey, three quick ones. Playing very fast against Oklahoma. Ohio State, and that was a shout-out to Tim May. I'm going to credit Tim May for this. He and I were talking about this at practice on Monday, and he made this point um, from the Columbus Dispatch, and I thought it was a good point. Ohio State got better in the second half against Tulsa when they slowed down. Yeah. They were actually off kilter going fast in the first half, and you could see them. Tulsa was really moving, and it was a stark contrast that Ohio State was not moving offensively at the pace Tulsa was in the second half. Ohio State was getting to the line, looking to the sideline, taking their time. They were getting a little regrouped. So if you think tempo could hurt Oklahoma, Ohio State wasn't great at tempo Yeah, versus Tulsa. So... You want Ohio State to be efficient if they're going to win. Can they do that at quick tempo to keep Oklahoma back on the heels? And then this is the third point, and we just talked about this briefly and see if you guys agree or disagree. I think you can take away – there's two ways to look at the fact that Houston, with a similar offense and a similar scheme, beat Oklahoma. One is that scheme with good players is effective against Oklahoma. It's a good sign for Ohio State. The other way to look at it is Oklahoma got to read the putt. They've done this, and if they're looking at film on how do we stop Ohio State, all they have to do is watch their film from two games ago when they played the Ohio State offense and couldn't stop it, or at least stop it enough. So, Bill and Ari, do you think that is, in the end, a net good thing for Ohio State, that Houston was effective against Oklahoma and played Oklahoma, or is it actually a bad thing for Ohio State because Oklahoma almost got a practice run against the Buckeye way of moving the ball. Yeah, I think it's probably a bad thing a, a, a bad thing for Ohio State and a good thing for Oklahoma. It's like they got a they got a real scout team game in against a team that's not quite as talented but wants to do the same things because Ohio State is not going to come into this game and and do like anything crazy or weird or something we haven't seen. I think everyone knows what Urban Meyer's offense is and like maybe there's a wrinkle or two, but you know for the most part what Ohio State's going to try to do um and Oklahoma had an entire game against that offense. Um, and I guess if you want to even go back to it, I mean, it's a long time ago, but Bob Stoops has played against this Urban Meyer's offense before too. So there's a lot of, of film that he can look at on how to stop this offense. And I think that's a good thing for Oklahoma because they can, I mean, they can completely change their defense if they want to. 
they were vulnerable against certain things that Houston was doing, and now they know that. Like if it was if this game was played in the first week of the season, and Ohio State came in with a clean slate, and Oklahoma came in with a clean slate, and that this Ohio State offense played uh, Oklahoma in the first game like Houston did, maybe it would have turned out really bad for Oklahoma. But now they have that full game, two weeks preparation to completely change their defense, however they see fit to combat that. Yeah, I do think that it's going to be tougher for Ohio State to come in with a very similar offense when they'd spent the last two weeks looking at what beat them. Um, so I agree a lot with what Landis says, but I, I feel like there's been a lot of tendency in the past in college football the few years that if some team struggles with the spread or struggles with a certain thing, that they don't just miraculously overcome it in two weeks. So I That's think true. That, That's uh, a good point. And I, and I think that there's a certain... They might be better off schematically, but if there is an athletic problem... Uh, you know, because there, there's times where you look at the film and go, oh, we'll just correct that on the film. But sometimes things are happening because people are incapable of doing certain things. I mean, it's part of the game. So, and I'm not saying that Oklahoma doesn't have athletes, but if there are people that aren't in good positions that from an athletic standpoint to do certain things that need to be done against the spread, then those are still going to be there against Ohio State. But what I do think is for as much time in practice as Oklahoma got against that spread, I think Ohio State also looked at the film and said, well, maybe we could do this as a branch off of that that they might not be ready for as well. So both sides of the uh, the equation are looking at film, and uh, I think it's a good indication that Ohio State has the tools and the offense to get things going against Oklahoma because a team that runs the same offense with less athletic players did it very well. Okay, so we talked about maybe how that Houston-Oklahoma game will affect how the game unfolds. Let's get a little bit uh, off the field. Ari, if you were Tom Herman and Urban Meyer called you this week, and we know that Urban Meyer and Tom Herman have talked, would you tell Urban Meyer how to beat Oklahoma? (laughs) I don't think that coaches think like us. So, I would be. Like, I'm, I don't I'm know. I'm this 100 percent thing. And the reason why you're asking this, Doug, is because you got to give the background of why it would even be a question. And the, the background is is because if Ohio State beats Oklahoma, that in turn makes Houston's win against Oklahoma less impressive. And Oklahoma needs to be really good for Houston to backdoor into the playoff. That win needs to be as quality as possible. So if Oklahoma goes on to win four games, that's not good for Houston. Which is why Doug asked me that. I don't think coaches think like that. I think they just think win the games ahead and just let things play out the way they play out. And I don't think that he would do something to put Ohio State in a worse situation to win that game because of the way that it plays out. Maybe I'm being naive, but um, I think Tom Herman, who now is a millionaire because of uh, Urban Meyer, is just going to have a candid conversation with him. And and we're not the only people thinking about this. I think we asked for, as we always do, if you want to Ask us any questions. Uh, we report, record this podcast every Monday. If you guys want to ask us questions, you can tweet us uh, anytime Monday at Ari Wasserman, at Bill Landis25, at Doug Maurice. Uh, and somebody, Bill, made this point, right? People sort of are seeing the dominoes of how Houston, Oklahoma, and Ohio State sort of all intertwine with their playoff hopes. Yeah, that was from um, Ben. B.A. Bradley 44 on uh, on Twitter. And I thought, I, I had not thought of that when we were on Monday. Urban Meyer was talking about talking with Tom Herman. And that thought had not creeped into my head that it would be more beneficial for Houston if uh, Oklahoma won this game. They actually, Houston, not to talk about Houston because nobody really cares, but Houston has two games that are important to them this weekend. They need Oklahoma to beat Ohio State, and it would also help them if Louisville, Louisville beats Florida State because Houston's only other like real game is playing Louisville down the road at the end of the season. 
Um, so those are like two really important things because Houston, once again, the playoff, they need to win. And, and Houston, by the way, also playing in Ohio this week. Houston playing at Cincinnati on Thursday night. Seven and a half point favorites. Houston is yeah. seven and a half point favorites. Interesting. Um, the, way, the, the example I always give on this is Tom Herman, after Ohio State beat Alabama in the national semifinal and then won the national championship, went to Alabama and told Alabama how Ohio State beat Alabama. Like Nick Saban asked him down there and he went. And so, like, again, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, don't, don't give your secret to whatever. But I think, like, in the coaching fraternity, it's like they just talk football, they talk philosophy, they talk schemes, they talk, you know, this and that. And then they go out and say, well, just because I told you I like to run this play doesn't mean now I can't beat you when we go against each other. And I think that the way I took the conversation was from an athletic standpoint – I'm not sure Urban was like, well, what play should we run? I think it was more no, of like, the, how do we stack up with what you know about the talent on our so team? Talk personnel, right? Personnel personnel yeah. I mean, if we saw who's the – no offense to this guy, but who, who's the corner? 20, number 27. I don't number know 27 for yeah. Oklahoma? I mean, we watched Oklahoma-Houston for 10 minutes and said, oh, throw it number 27. So I'm imagining part of the conversation is Tom Herman saying, throw it number 27, you know. And Urban Meyer said, you know, you don't have those conversations all the time. But when you have relationships, you know, you do reach out and that kind of thing. And I think, I think, you know, well, you never really know for sure. On one hand, I think, like, those conversations can be overrated and we can make a big deal out of them. But you know what? Sometimes I think, like, on the other hand, they could maybe be underrated. And if Tom Herman says, like, listen, man, we went empty set, unbalanced line, and every time we ran left, you could tell their blitzer was coming from the right and their – if you throw back, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We're yeah. saying, hey, throw it 27. They're smarter at football than us. There is a tendency that you can scout out that maybe is not even jumping off the film. Or maybe it's the kind of thing where Houston didn't even get around to exploiting it, but they saw it and said, I'm telling you, man, if you run this play and set it up this way, you're going to have somebody wide open. The, the thing about it, too, is like it's we talk about Urban Meyer talking with Tom Herman. Because it's fun and it's interesting. But, like, for all we know, Bob Stoops was, like, on the phone with Bud Foster this week, who was a defensive coordinator for Virginia Tech, and said, hey, man, tell me how you did that bear. That thing was sweet and we need to beat Ohio State. Or maybe he talked to Mark D'Antonio and said, how would you guys beat Ohio State last year? Like, coaches talk. Yeah, and it's hard to tell sometimes exactly who's, who's friends and who's not. So we'll have to ask. Next time we have Urban Meyer, just ask him, could you please give us a list of all your friends? <laughs> in alphabetical and, order. In alphabetical order and their phone numbers. Um, Okay, fake ad time. Um, Ari, I got over here and Ari offered me uh, diet cranberry juice. So <laughs> what is your favorite diet cranberry juice? What is the diet cranberry juice of choice in the Wasserman household? It's Ocean Spray. What is it? Ocean, Ocean Spray. Ocean Spray. You don't go generic brand? You go for the real I stuff? I don't really buy, or, buy generic stuff. I go to Walmart and buy the brand names because the brand names are cheaper at Walmart. Nice. See that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a Walmart ad too. So yeah. shout out to Walmart. Yeah, shout out to Walmart for exploiting employees <laughs> and giving the lowest prices. <laughs> um, sorry, we don't want to be. This is not, not a political. Like this no. is not a political uh, podcast. Um, but diet cranberry juice is the perfect thing to have in your house for guests because it is a mixer for alcohol. So if you're having people over and you're drinking, it's a good mixer. It's diet, so no matter what your situation is, you won't gain weight because of me. And third, you put a little ice cube in there, it's surprisingly refreshing. I like to cut it with a little bit of water. Yeah. Because yeah. cranberry the, juice no, can be the, a little harsh. But the diet makes it like it's already mixed with water. Oh, yeah. for real? 
Yeah, but you're not getting any because you mocked it. So just Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice, the perfect beverage pre, post, and mid podcast. But when when you're a young person, it's good to have mixers in the house, right? I always That's have mixers. I have tomato juice, too. Yeah. You want some of that? Mixers in the house. No, I don't want any of that. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is the, uh, the other thing that we promised we were going to talk about. And this is not exactly 100% Ringer, Blink, Everett. Ohio State related. Um, but we're going to talk about handsome men. And uh, we just couldn't help ourselves because we, I believe, were all watching uh, Sunday Night Football when the New England Patriots won. And we saw the postgame interview with Jimmy Garoppolo, who played uh, for the suspended Tom Brady. And were you not struck, Bill Landis? By the magnetic attraction of Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, it really was. I did, I, he's from Eastern Illinois, right? That's where he went? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know they made him that handsome in the FCS. Um, he's a good-looking man. And I didn't think that it was possible for a quarterback to be more handsome than Tom Brady. Because Tom Brady is male model handsome. And I think, uh, I think Jimmy Garoppolo is, is giving him a run for his money, but also like doing some legwork for the everyman. Because I don't think Jimmy Garoppolo is like... His male model handsome, but he's a good-looking, normal guy. Jimmy Garoppolo definitely seems like that guy who just, like, he gets off work, and he goes out, and then when he goes out, like, he's the guy you want to hang out with because he's the one who's attracting everybody around him. Like, um, he's kind of like, in his group of friends, like you are in your group of friends, right, Ari? I don't know, yeah. Yeah, I'm like the life of the party. I'm not going to say I look like that guy. Well, you Uh, got a little stubble, though. Yeah, I don't know. Who did you think was more attractive? Jimmy Garoppolo or Tom Brady? I think Jimmy Garoppolo's more attractive because he's really good-looking physically, but he's also approachable and fun. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that Tom Brady... Uh, I'm not really into uh, hanging out with dudes who look like they're on a polo Ralph Lauren horse ad uh, playing crochet. Cro- croquet. Croquet. <laughs> croquet. My grandmother used to crochet. Sorry. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about with the yeah. big turtleneck sweaters. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the slicked up hair and, like, the it's always the completely bald face. He always has a bald face. I, uh, closely trimmed. We def- I, I tweeted this on Sunday night and uh, definitely got a response that a lot of people seem to agree. Some Ohio State fans said that he was more handsome because he didn't have the Michigan um, stain on him as Tom Brady does. Uh, but others just straight up agreed that Jimmy Garoppolo was more handsome. Just feel like you, if you were out, I don't think you could walk up to Tom Brady, but I feel like you could walk up to Jimmy Garoppolo. Right? Yeah, and say, for hey, sure. Did you? Who was the most handsome quarterback? Just out there in general, like when you guys are thinking about handsome quarterbacks, you're just sitting around at home, sitting on the couch, watching football, eating chips, thinking about handsome quarterbacks. Aaron Rodgers is pretty handsome. Am I off on that? I think Jordan Rodgers is better looking than him. His brother from The Bachelor? From The Bachelor, but I also... I thought his face was not as symmetrical as Aaron Rodgers' face yeah. was. But he also has, like, flowing man hair, and it's perfect. I think that Jared Goff is really attractive because he's the California blonde-haired, blue-eyed Ryan Gosling look-alike. Yeah, who cares if he's not ready to play? He's yeah, handsome. I mean, I'm not talking about his skill set. I'm <laughs> talking about attractiveness. The guy's a good-looking human. You know who I thought was really not that, not that handsome, actually, and maybe everyone agrees with this, was Johnny. Oh yeah, no, yeah he's like, not yeah, like Johnny that. Manziel. Like has like the whole whatever thing. He's got a swag though. But it wasn't that he was handsome, was it? If Johnny Manziel wasn't a football player and wasn't rich, 
and he went to the bar scene, he would just be a normal dude. If Jimmy Garoppolo showed up or Tom Brady showed up, he would not be a normal dude. Yeah. And I think that's the standard that we're playing. Okay. Because he's also 5'11". Right. Like, girls like height, right, Bill? Bill's 6'6". So I've been told, yeah. Um, and Johnny didn't even have the height. So I think he, like, he was buff and muscular because he played the sport, but I don't think that he was transcendently attractive. Most handsome Ohio State quarterback you've covered. Ooh. I've only covered the team for three years, so it has that's, to be. That's not long enough because Bra- only, I've only been on the beat for seven years. The problem with me is that uh, Braxton Miller has not been a quarterback since I've been on the beat, so my choices are J.T. Barrett or Cardell Jones. Well, there's also Unless we want to go Burrow, backups. We can go, we can backups. go backups. Dwayne Haskins is a handsome man. I mean, Stephen Collier is the most handsome. Oh, yeah, Stephen Collier. Yeah, Stephen Collier is higher. Stephen Collier He's got blue handsome. eyes. They're piercing. Uh, I think Braxton Miller, I, I, I've like been toying with writing this almost on some level, and I, I actually reached out at some point uh, to his agent or the people promoting him um, when Braxton first got in the, in the league and was doing some promotional stuff. I think Braxton Miller could be a male model. Like, I think Braxton Miller could be, like, on a Times Square billboard someday. Speaking of this, just so you all know, Ohio State has offered and will at least get three Bishop Gorman players this year. Why am I bringing this up? Because Bishop Gorman's running back, I don't remember his first name. Oh, Muhammad Ali's Muhammad grandson. Muhammad Ali's grandson is a strikingly attractive young man who has signed a modeling, a male modeling contract. And because he signed it before he was starting his recruitment, he is now able to take pictures and do modeling while playing college football at Cal, where he is committed right now. And I found that to be interesting. Do you think Ohio State's going to try to flip him? Or is he already there? He's already there. I don't think he's of the caliber that they need. He's really fast. Uh, He is the fastest guy on Gorman's roster. But I just wanted to add, I thought that that was an interesting of like, if you're really attractive and you discover it fast enough, you don't, you can have another job during college football. And that's modeling for things. And like, I just like feel like it's so close to advertising and I just don't know how that works, but it's like, how hard would it be for that guy to just show up and look pretty one day and then get paid? Wow. NCAA works in such strange ways. It's hard to figure it out. I'm glad that guy found a loophole though. Because it's like, it's a loophole because like if he wanted to work at Auntie Anne's pretzels, he could. So why can't he be a model? Yeah, because he's doing it before. He's not getting an extra benefit that he can model he was a because model. he's a student athlete. I think that was the He's football. already it. He's already handsome without the football. His name wow. is, is Biagio Ali Walsh is his name. He's Muhammad Give Ali's me a picture. true I just I looked at a picture and I thought, wow, that guy is handsome and it was Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> that's him right there. That's him? Yeah. He is handsome. There he is. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's... Yeah, look this guy up. How do you spell his name? Biagio, B-I-A-G-G-I-O, Ali Walsh. He's got a shot with a Nike headband on. He's got a, a one with like a like a, a female model like brushing he's, his cheek. He's like trying to sell you a tuxedo. So that could have been like the Braxton Miller like contingency plan for modeling because he's always had beautiful eyes. I feel like Braxton Miller is more attractive than that guy though, honestly. Yeah. Braxton Miller is a good looking dude and Braxton Miller is like very fashionable and he cares a lot about fashion. And when Braxton Miller tore his rotator cuff... I felt bad for him, and that was kind of like he was at the center of, like, why can't college athletes get paid? Look at how much this guy's done for his program and how many yards he's racked up in the awards, and now he might not ever play again. because He could have been a model. Yeah, I still think he can be. Uh, Terrell Pryor, also a handsome quarterback at Ohio State, and Troy Smith, a handsome quarterback. So I feel like they've had a pretty good run. 
I mean, the better question would be is who's the ugly quarterback? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're all That's really next week's podcast. Yeah, next week's podcast. Who are the most unattractive men that you've covered at Ohio State? I've got one for you, but I'm not going to say his name. Wow, that yeah. is yeah. a tease. There's one on the team that is strikingly unattractive, but we wow, won't go there. This is Jeez. such dangerous territory. Uh, that's at Ari Wasserman if you want to tweet him and ask who that is. Um, Bill, any more questions that you have from the uh, population there? Um, I want to say one thing. I meant to say this when we were talking about JT Barrett and how he's throwing the ball earlier. Watching Robert Griffin III in the Browns opener was a reminder of like what it looks like when a guy cannot throw the ball to somebody. Um, he was so inaccurate. It was like, wow, JT Barrett really has been throwing the ball pretty well because Robert Griffin III missed everybody, and JT has really been putting it on guys' hands, I feel like, this year. So yeah. I, just to I don't think he's been throwing the ball poorly. but He put the ball – I mean, JT dropped it right on guys' hands four or five yes. times on tough throws uh, in the opener. It's just the same thing you always ask, like, can you throw a guy open? Can he fit in the tight spaces? And, like, you don't know the answer until he has to do it. He hasn't had to do it yet. Um, I don't know if I have – you guys have more questions than I do. I have one that is, will the defense spy Baker Mayfield? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think we can maybe talk a little bit about Baker Mayfield if we want to and, like, how we think that Ohio State might try to play against him. Because I was asking questions on Monday of guys – of how you defend a quarterback who's, like, basically willing to do anything to extend the play – um, Johnny Manziel is an easy comparison. Greg Schiano compared him to Brett Favre. He will run 15 yards into the backfield if it means he can keep the play along, alive three seconds longer and try to make a throw downfield. I think that's a really tough thing to game plan for, and you can do like all the scramble drill stuff you want and try to mimic that in practice, but I don't think there's anyone on Ohio State's roster who can really mimic that. That's a, that's a tough thing to have to game plan for when you know that the guy who's playing quarterback is sort of willing to do anything. And it's hard to... It's such a wild card in the game because I feel like he's – I think we're – Bill has a very interesting story planned for later in the week on this. But he's so different than JT Barrett that he is going to do crazy person things. Yeah. Baker Mayfield will. And so that might lead to a 19-yard loss and a fumble or it might lead to a broken play and a 60-yard gain. And so it's like how do you game plan for that? I think you can try to scout it out and assume, hey, the Ohio State secondary is playing really well. Hey, Marshawn Lattimore and Denzel Ward and Garyon Conley are good enough corners and fast enough to stick with guys for a few seconds if he is running around. Malik Hooker's going to ball hawk him and jump and throw him throws and that kind of thing. But Baker Mayfield like made his name doing that stuff. And right. so I think if you if you think Oklahoma's going to win, I think you have a couple of those plays factored in. And so do you spy him? I don't think they spy him. I think they just have... Um, linebackers on alert and you know a guy a guy like Darren Lee would have been the a number one guy you would have lined up to say that's not let Baker, Baker Mayfield go crazy you don't maybe don't have to spy him but let's make sure we get after him when he's running around so they're gonna have to ask Dante Booker and Chris Worley to do that if Dante Booker can't go Jerome Baker's gonna have to do that and they're gonna have to have guys the defensive ends I mean it's just cliche stuff you got to keep contained you can't over rush you can't let Sam Hubbard and Taekwon Lewis collapse the pocket so much that Baker Mayfield spins outside and then has 20 yards of open territory in front of him. So there's going to be parts of the game that occur that you can't account for exactly what he's going to do, but Baker Mayfield's going to do something. And part of that question, this question was from Christopher Hawley on Twitter. Part of that question was, do you think they use more athletic linebackers, which I guess is, do you use Jerome Baker maybe instead of Dante Booker? And Dante Booker, I believe Urban Meyer said he's probable. He's the MCL sprain. 
Uh, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to give Dante Booker another week to heal and play Jerome Baker there because he is more athletic. But the other thing that Oklahoma has is like two really good, really big running backs. And if you take Dante Booker off the field to put on a more athletic guy because you want to contain Baker Mayfield, then you have a really big linebacker in Dante Booker who's not on the field to try to stop guys like Samaj P. Ryan and Joe Mixon. And, and the thing is, it's not that Dante Booker's not athletic. Everyone's talked about how athletic he is. Right. Jerome Baker's just smaller and faster. Yeah. But I think Dante Booker, for his size, which is just a bigger linebacker, is a really athletic guy. So I don't think... I think if Dante Booker's healthy, there's absolutely yeah. Dante Booker's on the field for you. Ari, anything? I have a question from Corey Matthew, 15, on Boy Me Tour. Boy Me's World. Yeah. OSU recruits at the same level as Alabama, and Big Ten is allegedly worse than SEC, yet OSU not given the same preseason respect as Alabama in regards to the playoff race. I think basically what he's trying to say is if Ohio State recruits as well as Alabama and has an easier path in his mind to the playoff, why does Alabama always get the benefit of the doubt while Ohio State isn't automatically penciled in as a playoff contender? I'm not sure I necessarily agree that they're not getting the respect. I think that both ESPN national guys, Brett McMurphy and Mark Schlabach, did I say his name? Schlabach. Schlabach. Put Ohio State and Alabama in the national title game on Monday. So, or Sunday on a piece that they write every week after, you know, the bowl projection. So, um, I, I don't. I think that Ohio State is actually getting a lot of respect from a lot of people, but I don't think that they're Alabama yet because, frankly speaking, they are still a step behind, a half step behind Alabama in recruiting. Um, Alabama's had number one classes for like six years in a row, and Ohio State's been between two and six during that span. And even though there isn't a bunch of difference, a big difference between being number five and number three, or number five and number two, having the number one overall class repeatedly means more five stars, more talent, more dynamic players. So Alabama has done it repeatedly on the field. They've won one. How many championships have they won out of the last six years? Like four out of the last four, six? Right? I mean, that's ridiculous. How many? And um, I don't want to put Ohio State in that same category when they're still trying to put together their top, their, their first top overall class under Meyer, which they're you know, probably going to do this year in 17. In the last three recruiting classes combined, how many five-star prospects has ever Meyer signed? Why two? don't we go ahead and like put me on the spot? No, right but it's now. two, right? It's, I Nick, two or it's three. Nick Bosa and Justin Hilliard. Justin Hilliard, five stars in the last three recruiting classes. Okay. Alabama signed 13. 13 Did you just two. look that up? Yeah. It's another level. They're not there yet. And 2017's recruiting class is really good. But so Ohio that, State has six five-stars in this one class. Right. So but like they're, they're, not they're, not, they're not playing this year. 100% agree with you. They are not Alabama yet, Bill. Thank you for the stats. And, and the one thing is I feel like um, people have been questioning some legitimately, some because people just like to take shots at the SEC because the SEC thinks it's full of itself. Um, the SEC maybe is not quite what it used to be in terms of being sort of head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, everybody was pointing to their 7-7 seven and seven record in the first week of the season. We know LSU was a top-five team and went and lost you know, on the, in Wisconsin uh, to Wisconsin. So I think it's possible that the SEC as a whole is not quite where it was. Bama is still Bama. Yeah. So... Like, just like I think it would be, Ohio State has established itself enough at the moment with a national title, with the kind of talent they had last year, that they sort of rise above their conference. You can talk about the Big Ten and all that stuff. Ohio State's on a different level. Alabama is on a different level than everybody in the SEC. So maybe two through 14 in the SEC you want to take shots at. 
But still right now when it comes to college football, there's Bama and there's everybody else. Four out of six titles, man. That is absolutely ridiculous. And maybe Ohio State's leading the everybody else pack. But right now, still, they are with everybody else, and Bama stands alone. Yeah. Um, one question I had, and it, we, we sort of covered it, is um, from our boy uh, Nathan at GNilly97. I know he's a loyal Twitter follower. How concerned should we be about the lack of an outside receiver stepping up so far? And I think, I think we think it, it we sh- Ohio State should be pretty concerned, right? I mean, we sort of covered that with Noah Brown hasn't established that. If it's, let me ask this off of that, Nathan's question, though. Uh, Urban Meyer praised Paris Campbell this week, but, but compared him to Evan Spencer, and what Evan Spencer did best on the football field was all the parts of a receiver that aren't necessarily catching the ball, and there are a lot of things that go into that. You can't look past that. But if let's, – let's just take Noah Brown off the table for a second – not that he is off the table, but just you can't answer him. Who's the guy that makes the big plays? Who's the outside receiver who makes the big plays against Oklahoma if it's not Noah Brown? I mean, I, would, I guess I would say Paris Campbell, right? I don't know. Who else would you say? I mean, Paris Campbell was my pick for the second leading receiver this year, and he hasn't. Has he done anything? I don't even know if he has a catch. I mean, he drew the pass interference call. Yeah, I don't, and that might be the only time they tried to throw him the ball in the, in the first two games. Like they, they Which tried. is the, the, you know, that's the epitome of what concern would be. Yeah, they're not being able drops. to identify it. I mean, there's people on the team that have recognizable names that we've written about. I mean, KJ Hill caught a touchdown pass. He can go the rest of the year without catching a pass. But he's, an, he's not anybody. an outside receiver either. Yeah, right. so I mean, like that James one Clark. play that he did make was the outside. It was an outside. Route, no, he was, right? out he was in the slot. He, came he out was out of the slot, slot and then yeah. beat the guy. Down. I mean, that's when they. That was in that Bowling Green game. He caught a 45 yard touchdown pass. Oh, I thought he was down the sideline from the outside. No, okay, it's oh. like he got a he got a snap at H. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's crazy to think, and I don't think it would have happened because I think we got enough of a read during preseason camp that this guy just wasn't as far along in catching the ball and doing all the things you need to do. Yeah, but man, Torrance Gibson, man, <laughs> like if you're like looking to if you were looking to line somebody up and tell them to run down the field past that number twenty-seven corner for Oklahoma and wait for the ball. I don't know, man. Like, they rotated so many receivers so far this year. You wonder if he would have gotten Torrance shot. Gibson's the perfect theory. And he's just, it's, I mean, he's it, different than all those guys. He's, and he's just, he's, and if you don't know, Torrance Gibson is, is suspended from Ohio State as a university for the fall. Not even just the football team. So he's not part of anything right now. But I'll tell you, I was a little bit surprised last week. And we're almost done here on the uh, Buckeye Talk podcast with Ari, Bill, and Doug. Um, Austin Mack was not a big part of the receiver, receiver rotation versus Tulsa. We know he's a true freshman. Bill, you wrote a lot of things about him. Some really interesting stuff in preseason camp about how developed he was as a high school receiver. Given that we haven't really seen receivers on the outside step up, are you surprised that Austin Mack is not a bigger part of the conversation? I am very surprised. Um, we haven't really been given a reason why other than like he's just a freshman and he's still learning things. But It, it's, it makes sense, except it, you thought it, he was the exception to the rule. Right, because everyone was spoke so highly of him and just how advanced he was even for a freshman. He was a guy who had like private receiver coaching starting his freshman year in high school. And I, I thought that – I didn't expect him to be Ohio State's leading receiver. I, like, I don't even know if I expected him to be among the top three receivers, but I thought that he would be in the mix. And he is – if they're rotating ten receivers, he's number ten. He is um, – He's not an afterthought, but hes I don't know how much he's even going to play at receiver against Oklahoma if it's a close game. Yeah, it was part of special teams, but really was not part of the regular rotation of the receivers. So I'll tell you, I think if you're looking for something on Saturday, um, I think we might be on to the thing here of they're going to need to throw it. 
And who are they going to throw it to? So oh, you got me thinking I'm not picking Ohio State anymore, Doug. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, Oklahoma, it's one of these things. And I think when you do it right, Ohio State's an extremely talented team that's played very, very well for the first two weeks. We feel like we know this team so well, we can see all the little cracks. And I think that we over, yeah. And, 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 I, and if you want to really know the team, that's, I think you want to talk about all the little cracks. Because you know that this, it's still a big plate that you can serve a lot of food on, you know? So we're just telling you where the little cracks are. Oklahoma, you know, Oklahoma's got more cracks than Ohio State through two weeks. Um, it's just a matter of what can Oklahoma get fixed. And the, the thing I wrote this week, you know, Ohio State's got to play its best. Are you sure they're going to play the way they played the way they in the first two weeks when they were at their best? Will they be at their best in Norman, Oklahoma? We will all be there. We will be uh, close to our best. Maybe not at full. I mean, you know, it's 96%. Longer, 96%. Yeah. So... Stick with us all week at cleveland.com slash OSU. I'm our outside threat. <laughs> Find the uh, Buckeye Talk podcast on iTunes. Go ahead and subscribe to that, and uh, it will be a lovely weekly uh, thing to listen to. So thank you again for joining us. For Bill Landis, for Ari Wasserman, I am Doug Maurice, and this is Buckeye Talk.